An A320 runs off the runway and crashes in Sao Paulo, Brazil. How did anxiety in a notorious runway cause this historic disaster? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody, for number 12. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. (laughs) And we're still trying not to sound sick. Although, we did record the other episode just two days ago, actually, which is really not normal for us. Guys, our schedule's all whacked. Well, it's the holidays. That just kind of happens. This is, like, the weekend before Christmas that we're recording this, so we're all, like, out of whack. They're leaving to go to Oregon on Wednesday. On Christmas Day. Yeah. So, like, we have to figure out a day where we can do recordings after they come back. Yeah, because we don't come back be until here. New Year's Eve, which is after when we would normally record the next episode. So we're about to spend two holidays at DIA. We'll see how this goes. Yay! Although, well, yeah, but that's part of why we're going is because it was so cheap. Because yeah. no one wants to leave that day. No, no, they don't, of course. And that's true. You might be on a completely empty flight. You never know. Right. We'll see. Anyway. Anyway. What, what we cover in today... So today, as Jay tried to figure out your brother, tried to he tried to pry this out of me because he listens all the time now. And he was like, so what's the flight number? Like four times. And I was like, not telling you. You're just going to have to listen. We're covering TAM 3054. TAM Brazil. Or JJ 3054. It was weird. I'm not putting that as the episode title. That's fine. It's um, going to be TAM. That's fine. Then I'll put it on the website. Good to know for future reference. <laughs> so this was a flight from Porto Alegre to Sao Paulo, Brazil, on July 17th of 2007. So fairly recently. Fairly recently. I remember when this happened. I remember watching it on the news. I remember all this stuff. I mean, it was pretty crazy. I have zero recollection of this. And that's okay. I don't watch the news. To be honest, the whole reason, okay, the whole reason I even saw this on the news actually is because I was, I was visiting family in Europe at the time. And while I was there, it was on BBC and CNN and all that, because those were the only English channels that my grandmother got there. So that's what I would watch. And they always covered like whole world events and stuff. And like this was being covered like crazy at the time. So I remember when this happened, this flight was to be done in an an Airbus A320 with the tail number of Papa Romeo dash Mike Bravo Kilo. It was a ni- scheduled to be a 90-minute flight with 181 passengers and six crew. The captain was Enrique Stefanini de Sacco. He was 53 years old. He had 13,654 flight hours. The first officer was Aguilar Clay Bar Lima. He was 54. He had 14,760 flight hours. So both of them were very experienced pilots, to be honest. They had a lot of hours. They have very, very Portuguese-type names. Yes, they were. Stefanini. Stefanini. De Sacco. De Sacco. That actually almost sounds more Italian. It kind of, but it's definitely well, Portuguese. Portuguese to be is honest. very similar to Spanish and Italian, but there's just something different. <laughs> yeah. And I only know that because... We know people who are from Brazil who speak Portuguese. Right. I haven't seen them in a long time. But anyway, totally off track. <laughs> they sound like they're Portuguese. Yeah. Or yeah. from at least Southern America. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So the flight departed Porto Alegre at 5.19 p.m. local time and was bound for the Congonhas Airport in Sao Paulo. It's one of two airports in Sao Paulo. It's the smaller one that handles most of the domestic traffic. There's another one that's much bigger, handles most of the international traffic. That said, while they were in flight, they found out that the runway 35 left at Congonhas was shut down. Which is like the boogeyman of runways, apparently. Yeah, it was. it's a really big runway at, or it's the big runway at Congonhas. I shouldn't say it's really big because it's not. It's only 6,500 feet long, which is pretty short for a commercial airport, especially a major one. And uh, it was notorious with pilots because... It had drop-offs on both ends, and it's surrounded by the city very, very closely. It's also known to be slippery, and conditions there sometimes are are rough. Planes there supposedly take off and land about every 90 90 seconds. 
Which they make, in the episode that we watched, they make that sound like a big deal. When really, that's like DIA traffic. They were pushing that, like, that airport's one of the absolute busiest in the world. Which, don't get me wrong, it probably is very busy. <laughs> There's a lot of busier airports in the world, to be honest. Like, Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson has a plane take off and land every 20 to 30 seconds. Something like that, yeah, it's crazy. So, not as bad. So, this runway is so notoriously dangerous, as a matter of fact, that just the day before this flight... Uh, a small commuter airplane had actually slid off the runway and into the dirt. And just a handful of months before the incident, a 737 skidded off and was just inches from falling off one of the cliffs onto the highway below. Again, it's the boogeyman. However, that said, while they were in flight, they the flight crew began to prepare an alternate airport because there was heavy rains throughout most of Brazil and basically over their entire route. It's very normal during the winter season Yes, this is July. They are in the Southern Hemisphere, so it's the winter season. In the winter season, it gets very rainy there. So they were there was rain and adverse conditions, weather conditions, the whole flight, and especially in Sao Paulo. They've been dealing with it for days. So they had begun planning for an alternate, but while they were planning for the alternate, the air traffic control got back to them and said that runway 35 left was back in operation and there was no need to divert. They were not even going to be the first airplane to land on it. That was just in the middle of their flight. They were told that they didn't need to divert. However, the flight crew was aware that only one of their two thrust reversers was active and usable on the flight. So thrust reversers are in the engine. Basically, all they do is literally when you touch down, they reverse the flow of air away from thrust. So they prevent the airplane from accelerating anymore. They don't necessarily push air backward, but they can create a wall of air to slow the airplane down horizontally, perpendicular to the direction of the airplane. In older planes, they actually do reverse. They do actually reverse. They have they had a clamshell, which would actually push the air forward. But in this case, in the E320, it doesn't, know, it doesn't mostly push it forward. It mostly creates a wall of air perpendicular to the direction of the airplane, which creates a lot of drag. So they only had one of these two thrust reversers working. They had the number one, the left side of the airplane working, However, the number two, the right side, was not working. They were It was pinned shut by maintenance a few days before the flight, and they were aware of this when they took off. And it's, as a matter of fact, in the aircraft's minimum equipment list that they only need one thrust reverser to operate the aircraft. They were well within limits before they took off. They knew that. They were cleared to land on runway 35 left by ATC, and at that point, ATC also informed them that the runway was reported as Wet and slippery, with winds at 330 at 8 knots, so not very high winds, but it was wet and slippery. That was relayed to them by the tower from flights that had just landed. At that point, the pilots decided to hand fly and disengage the autopilot in order to try to land the airplane as close to the end of the runway as possible so that they had as much stopping distance as possible, be it that the runway was relatively short. So the plane touches down at 6.54 p.m., and the pilots immediately noticed that the wing spoilers, or the speed brakes on the wings, did not deploy. They are supposed to pop up when the airplane touches down to divert the air from going over the wings. Are those the things, like, when you look out the window, they, like, pop up on the wings? Yes, yep, exactly. They used the reverse thruster from the one, the number one engine, but they didn't slow down. So they began to use the foot brakes very heavily, and they were holding on to them for a very long time as they freaked out because the airplane wasn't slowing down. The airplane suddenly began to pull left uncontrollably, and it jumped the ledge from the airport across the highway and impacted the ground and buildings as well as a gas station. It actually struck a building that belonged to TAM Airlines. Yeah, it belonged to TAM Airlines. It belonged to their cargo division, but nonetheless it belonged to the airline that was operating this flight. They struck a TAM building. So, I might be wrong on this, but... Shouldn't they have done a touch-and-go? If they knew they couldn't slow down, could they have just sped up and and lifted out of there? Yes and no. They didn't necessarily have any immediate sign that they should be doing so because the thrust reverser activated. They had their feet on the brakes. The airplane should be slowing down. They didn't really have, other than the spoilers not going up, that's not necessarily an immediate cause for concern every single time if they still have two of three factors to help them slow down. Plus, it was a notoriously short runway. They may not have had the distance to regain speed 
to reach V1, which is takeoff speed. Yeah, By the time they, they noticed, they they may not have had the time to react. Also, we'll get into it, but they were freaking out. They were. They well, were very anxious. Yes, I would. I would be anxious too if putting this in a car scenario. If you're trying to brake and your car won't brake, yeah, and you're yeah. about to go through an intersection with a red light, yeah, I would be pretty freaking anxious. Yeah. But my my point being is if they didn't slow down, would they have had enough time to... And that's, while that's technically unknown, they may have. They may have. We don't, we don't know for sure if they had enough distance, time to react, all that. Speed. They were, they were humans, so I mean, they were trying to figure out what was going on with the airplane, and by the time they'd figured out that they weren't going to stop, it was too late. Mm-hmm. Which is usually the case. But yeah. I just wanted to ask, because my brain was like... Yeah. When this happens... Right, I get it. Or if it happens, I guess. Yep. So needless to say, because it crashed into a gas station, there was a very large fireball and a lot of flames. And the wings broke off and spilled fuel everywhere. Everywhere. 200 firefighters responded to the incident. The fuel fire was burning at 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, for anyone who doesn't live in the United States. Is about 982 degrees Celsius. Very hot. Flipping hot. Yeah. There were people killed at the gas station. Three to four cars were on fire. One car did contain a mother and her child. Yep. And they were concerned that fuel in the tanks underneath the gas station could burst at any moment and explode. So, obviously, firefighters were fighting really hard to prevent that fire from spreading any further. The airplane... So, one of the wings... Blocked escape from the TAM building from some people inside. Uh, But some survivors in that building were able to get out from a different part. Nobody on board survived. Twelve people at the gas station in the TAM building perished for a total of 199. This was the worst accident in South American history. Is it still? Yes. It is the worst worst aviation accident in South American history to this day. That's all I have for the story. It's not a, yeah, it's not a very long story. I mean, the whole thing happened like that. We do a lot of fire explosion accidents lately. Turns out that's how most airplanes impact the ground. They're common. (laughs) They usually burst into flames because they're full of jet fuel. Anyway. So the investigation was performed by the Aeronautical Accident Investigation and Prevention Center, which is a division, I guess, of the Brazilian Air Force. And they started investigating before the fire was even put out. Um, One of their main concerns while the fire was being fought that they wanted to get the black boxes because they knew there is a like a temperature threshold that the recorders can survive. So that was a really big focus of the firefighting efforts. But before that, the very first thing they went to was actually surveillance camera footage of the tarmac of the runway. But the crash had occurred outside of the view of the camera, so they couldn't see that exactly. But they could still glean a little bit of information from the camera. What they did get was that when a normal A320 landed under normal circumstances, it would take nine seconds to cross the view of this camera. This plane took three. So it was going three times as fast as a normal A320 landing. So needless to say, it was very, very, it was still moving very, very quickly at that point. Probably didn't help that it was a little slick because it was raining, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of factors. So they knew from the get-go something was wrong. Like, speed-wise. That was why they went off course. Around four hours after the crash, still firefighting, crews were able to recover the black boxes, and they were sent to Washington, D.C. to be examined by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB in the United States, in the hopes that the fire hadn't compromised the data. Which I'm kind of, like, I'm a little confused about, because you said that Brazil's like a huge aviation center. They are, but because they don't really have a hand in manufacturing the Airbus or black Boeing. black boxes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they have... Those specific black boxes. They the have NTS- Embraer. Yeah, they have Embraer, but the thing is, the NTSB notoriously has the best lab for handling okay. black boxes. And in this case, needless to say, they were like, Panic. this is an unbelievably big incident. Yeah. They're like, we need to have this looked at as deeply as possible. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Investigators, in the meantime, examined both the airport's runway as well as the maintenance records for the accident plane. At the runway, the first thing they noticed is water was pooling on the runway. There is no way that that should be happening. 
the reason that you never want to have water pooling on a runway is just like in your car, you can hydroplane. Right. Basically, you go too fast on a water-covered surface and you actually lose contact with the surface of the road or runway, whatever. The runway was actually resurfaced a month ago, as far as this incident is. The runway was resurfaced one month prior because of its history of low traction and skidding. Yeah, but what did they resurface it with? That was not the concern. I'll get into it. Hold on. However, three days before the crash, torrential rains began, and pilots started landing at Cargonias reporting the same problems it had before, skidding and low traction. The reason was that they hadn't completed one part of the runway's resurfacing yet. They hadn't grooved it yet. So it was completely smooth. And the grooves are what is used to direct water off of the runway. So not only was it completely smooth, but there was no way for the water to get off the runway. Correct. Yep. So it combining, it's kind of like black ice on a, on a brand new asphalt ground. Yep. Yeah. It's like there's no way mm-hmm. to fix that. Right. <laughs> yep. Right. Other than not going so fast, which for planes is hard to do. Yeah, that's, no. no. Yeah, and they opted not to do that. I know, I guess I'll let you get into that because you probably have that. Why they didn't groove it yet. No, I don't. Oh, yeah, they didn't groove it at the time because they had taken so long to do the resurfacing. The ed- That airport being as busy as it was, they were concerned about it impacting any more operations than it needed to. So they decided to delay the grooving until the crews were available on site to do it in a hurry. And they didn't groove it right then and there. So, as Miranda's about to explode mm. about, they didn't do it because they were losing money. And people died. <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> Who cares if it's going to take time? I get it, right? It's, you need to make sure planes can land, but I'm sure that's not the only runway at that airport. No, There's two, but it is the main one. But it is the bigger one of the two. So the other one was handling operations in dry conditions okay, but be it that it was so short, in any other conditions, they were it was completely unusable. Also, why did they wait to do this till it was raining anyway? Why didn't they do this in the months where it wasn't raining so much? I can't speak to that. Unknown. I feel like that's just, it's going to be faster because you don't have to stop for rain. You don't have to worry about weather conditions. You can do it during slow times at the airport when there's not a lot of flights coming in. I mean, I feel like that's, hello. There's solutions to these problems that could have... There are, but there weren't necessarily always requirements for them to have to groove the runway. It was a convenience option, and at that airport, obviously, it should be in place, but it wasn't an absolute regulation that they had to groove that runway. It was considered an upgrade. Yeah, it was considered operable the way it was. Well, that's... I get that, right? Obviously, planes landed there while they were... Under that kind of stuff. Including that plane, by the way. Yeah, that plane had landed there the day before. Yeah. Without one of the thrust reversers. Again, that makes sense to me. But that probably could have helped this not happen. Yep. It's one of several. It's many factors. I don't know. I feel like... Anyway. Just do it. Once (laughs) investigators realized the extent of this problem, they issued their very first recommendation. Four days. After the accident. After the accident. To groove the pavement? No, to make it a dry weather only runway. Oh, interesting. That so was, then, would they not be able to land any planes ever? That's pretty much when the alternative. When it's raining? Yeah. That's pretty much the alternative. So they would yes. have all planes that would be there if there was water on the runway would have to get redirected. Yep. Now, mind you, this is a recommendation. Whether or not they follow through with that is different. True. But again, like that was their first recommendation four days into the investigation. So pretty high priority thing now for the maintenance records i'd mentioned as nick talked about they only had one operable thrust reverser this was because the right one had been deactivated for maintenance four days prior and had been flying without incident since then it had even landed on that runway like the day before so something else was wrong income yeah and it was raining so what went wrong well did it land before when it was raining yes Okay, it had so been then raining it's for something three days. with the plane then. It had been raining for three days. No. It was not with the it plane. It, they went down a rabbit hole that I'm not going to get into because it's a, it was a dead end. It was not a mechanical failure. They found nothing wrong with the airplane. The, the so one, was it pilot error? Yes. Let me get into it. Okay. So at this point in the investigation, they now had the data from the black boxes. 
One thing they noticed was that the spoilers and the auto brakes did not deploy, even though they were set to auto-deploy, which occurs when pressure is put on the landing gear upon landing. Why didn't they deploy? One circumstance in which they won't deploy is if one of the engines is set to full throttle. And that's what happened. Wait, 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 wait. They had the engines full throttle when they landed? One engine full throttle. Engine two, the one without the thrust reverser. They didn't turn de- they didn't turn it to idle when they nope. landed? Why? Yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> Not having spoilers actually increased the distance necessary for a full stop by about 50%, according to Airbus. Current procedure for landing with one thrust reverser was to bring both engines to idle and then both to reverse as if they never had a thrust reverser out in the first place. This did not happen. Engine 2 was running at full during landing, which is why they pulled left and off of the runway once they hydroplaned. That makes sense. It was going full throttle while the yep. other one, one was going wasn't. Full, one was going reverse, so the airplane moved left. <laughs> so how could this have happened? Did the captain not know procedure? That was not the case. They looked back to the previous landing that he had done in that plane, and he performed the landing using the proper procedure just fine. Was he the pli- pilot flying then, and the yes. other pilot was the one monitoring? No, so the captain was flying in both of these circumstances. He knew the procedure. However, when they started interviewing pilots about how they land on this runway in this plane, what do they do? And at one point they realized that it was pointed out that the current procedure was amended from a previous one by Airbus, and that the previous one was to take both to idle, but only take the one with the operable thrust reverser to reverse. This is closer to what was done in the accident plane, but engine 2 was still left at full. It actually made sense for the captain to use that procedure, the old one, as opposed to the new one, because you stopped quicker. So That makes sense, but that it doesn't make sense why the engine was still at full thrust. Airbus had changed this procedure because pilots were making the very mistake that was made in this incident. He was not the only one, in other no, words. No, it had happened several times, and there had been several runway excursions because of this problem. Should the pilots have noticed this mistake? They were so close to noticing. So close. They noticed that the spoilers didn't deploy. They verbally said, I think, I think it was like, spoilers, nada. Mm-hmm. Spoilers, nothing. Okay, here's my problem with them not realizing it sooner. Is And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, because I don't know how the, the A320's cockpit is. Um, but I'm assuming it's similar to other planes where the engine controls are right here. Yes, they're in the middle, yep. And so you would be able to see if one engine was all the way up and the other was at idle. They couldn't. Why? at night in the dark. They did this in a simulator, and the investigators in the simulator plugged in all the proper conditions, and they made the same mistake. They They couldn't see the handles? They couldn't see. It was too dark. What? <laughs> okay, listen. Uh, I feel like that's dangerous no matter what condition you're in. If you can't see where the engines are? Yes and no. Because here's the thing. Here's why it was being left there. It was actually in the climb position, which is almost full throttle. It's, fli- it's flightful for crews. <laughs> the climb or CL position is where you would leave the throttle for the auto throttles or the autopilot to have the functionality of controlling the speed of the airplane. So while they're on approach the whole time, they're probably using the auto throttle, adjusting it all the way to their final approach speed. So they left the throttle there, assuming that the auto throttle has control of that, that engine still bringing it all the way down to that, that speed. The problem then is as soon as they hit the runway and began to reverse on one engine, the auto throttle took over the right engine and began to accelerate. I guess I don't completely understand, but... So, in other words, that throttle, as soon as they set it into the climb position on takeoff, it will stay there. Yeah, but the don't they have to flight. pull it back to land anyway? Normally, yes, but because he knew that only one thrust reverser was active, he pulled only that throttle back. Which is a common mistake. They left the other one there, assuming that it was... he. He made the mistake thinking that he had already pulled it back to idle as well. And he was so focused on pulling back just one throttle lever, he didn't pull the other one back to idle and didn't notice. He made the mistake, which is the same mistake that warranted the procedure to be changed in the first place. Right. I feel like 
I don't know, part of this, right, is, and they've went over this in what you just said a couple minutes ago, that they should land the plane like normal, even if the thrust reverser wasn't working. Yes. Which... But he decided not to because he had so much anxiety, and they found this on the CVR. They had so much anxiety about landing at a notoriously dangerous runway in horrible, dangerous conditions. And again, they had spent quite a bit of time discussing that only one thrust reverser worked, so he was so focused on making sure that one engine got to thrust reverse. I don't know. I feel like at that point, your training takes over. You make sure both throttles are at idle. I don't know. You would think... Part of me, I wasn't in the position, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't there. I am not a pilot. I don't know what kind of anxiety that would cause. Yeah, you have to remember, he's anxious and he's trying to... He's also pilot flying, so he's making sure that the airplane hit the ground and it's staying on the center line. And he's trying to make sure that all other functions of the airplane are operating at the same time while he's also pulling the throttle back. He's doing a million things at once while also being anxious. Yeah. I Ultimately, psychologists on the investigation team determined that the main cause of this accident was the anxiety in the cockpit while landing. It made them forget procedure. It made them... I feel like a recommendation would be that there's some sort of illumination so that they can see... You would think, but that's not ultimately the major issue. Well, so you I understand think. that the procedure is part of the issue. Yes. However, if they could have seen the handles on mm-hmm. the engines, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be a big thing, right? It can be just something that illuminates the handles to see where they are. Because I'm assuming if they could see it, it wouldn't have happened. Or, so there is an effective fix that gets recommended. Yes, and I'm going to steal a little bit of Nick's thunder right now. Sure. But the recommendation is that there be an audible, and I don't know if visual also, but there is a warning whenever there is an inappropriate thrust setting configuration. So basically, if the two throttles are too far apart, if one goes into reverse and the other is too far forward, it would give a nice loud alert. Or even on the approach function, they're saying they wanted to make the airplane smart. They wanted it to to be As ahead Airbus of the Airbus does. They yeah. wanted it, yeah. They wanted it to be ahead of the pilots, basically saying, "Okay, the airplane." They wanted the airplane to be smart, thinking, "Okay, I'm in a descent, and one throttle's been pulled back. We must be landing. Why didn't the other throttle get pulled back?" And give the pilots a warning because they must be intending to land. Yeah. Right. And as, as for Miranda's little brief comment there, for those of you who don't know. A lot of pilots prefer flying Boeing because it's quote unquote more fun. Airbus automates a lot of their systems, which yes, is they why do. they, I think, have a better safety record than Boeing. To be but. honest, well, uh, it's they're about the same. All their safety records are pretty similar, to be honest. But generally, these days, Airbus's automation is much better, and it works better with the pilot crew resource management. They simplify a lot of things, so not as much as is in the pilot's hands. There's less margin for error. Like, one of the things we were talking about recently was how many flap-setting degree, like, tick marks there are in Airbus versus Boeing. Yeah, the 737 has, like, 15 different flap settings, while the Airbus has four. Four flap settings. That means they only have to adjust the the flaps four times maximum on their approach. I guess... That keeps them focused on landing versus the whole time they're having to think about speed on on the 737... And think about, okay, I've hit my next speed mark, flaps 15, next speed mark, flaps 20, next speed mark, flaps 30. You know, like, it just takes them so much so much time to think about that kind of stuff the whole time they're just trying to fly the airplane. And and don't get us wrong, there has been issues with Airbus being oh, too automated, yes. and we can get into that at a different time on Someday a different we'll crash. Someday we'll cover exactly why the A320 was too automated. Yes, because... It, it was. It was. This is kind and of an example it. of that, but not as much as a totally different incident. Right. So Airbus likes to do a thing where they make sure that if the pilots do something weird, the plane has a way to fix itself so that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. That's all I got. Cool. I don't know. I. It's hard for me to imagine the amount of anxiety it would take to have a pilot forget to pull back an engine. Yeah. It's quite a bit. I mean, the thing is, they were at in the point, rain. At that point, don't land at that airport. Well, and that's part of that's part of the findings. It's part of the recommendations too. Is like 
at what point should they have maybe decided to go around instead or go to a different airport? Or, yeah. Yeah. You know, why, why they decided to land at that airport? Because anyways, of the company. That's well, why. That's part of it. Yes. There's a lot of pressures on that. But also, I mean, I think so many other airplanes were landing at that airport at the time. They were like, okay, we'll probably be fine. Everything will be fine. You know, they, they were not the first or even probably the, the, 10th, 12th to land at that airport since it reopened again. So they were like, you know, they said it's slippery, but everybody else seems to be faring okay. Let's just make it in like we would every time. But this wasn't like every time. Nope. I mean, he had landed that same airplane there already in the rain, so why should it be any different, though? Without a thrust reverser. Yeah. That's my thing, too. He already did it, what, the day before? Mm -hmm. and he Was did he it... the pilot who did it the day before? Yes, and he did it with the other procedure. So... Then, uh, I guess, I don't know. If you've already done it once and you were fine, it would be hard for me to believe to have that much anxiety. However, me being a musician, I can understand. You can get up on stage and flip out. And yeah. every time flip out. Like, you've been on, I have had six juries, and still, every time I wanted to, like, poop myself, I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... Think about it, too. One of the big things that he was aiming to do as pilot flying was to land that airplane as close to the threshold as possible, so as early as possible on the runway. There are touchdown marks that are usually about a 1,000 feet in on the runway, and he's instead trying to land it probably two, right 300, two 300 feet in to the runway. So he's trying to land it as soon as possible. He's dead focused on that, and as he's coming in to touch down... He's making sure he's got his eye on that touchdown point. He pulls back the throttle. He's not his de his focus isn't on the throttle itself. It's just on his touchdown mark. He missed the throttle. My I guess part of my issue is with that too. Again, I realize anxiety is a thing. I have anxiety. I definitely have anxiety. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like, believe me, being a musician, I've had a ridiculous amount of anxiety. The difference between that and this is lives are at stake. Right. But my, my issue is, is I feel like this should have been, if what you're saying is true, it should have been automatic to automatically pull back both throttles. And normally, yes. So, again... Having but, a visual because he couldn't see or having an alarm because right. they didn't realize... Sure, but I, I don't know. I feel like it would have been automatic. The other thing that sucks is they did an analysis, and if the runway had been grooved, this wouldn't have happened. Because they would have gotten traction. Right. Yep. So. More than likely, anyway. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Real quick, before we start the findings and recommendations, mm -hmm. I do want to say I'm not condescending the pilot. I realize that there can be crippling anxiety to the point where you forget stuff, it's happened to me before. It's happened to most of us before. I want to say before people tear my head off, I'm not blaming the pilot on this. There's a lot of factors that fed into this. I'm just saying that if you're so used to doing something, usually stuff's automatic, I would think that he would pull back both engines. But as we said, he had so much on his mind. Mm -hmm. It was dark. He couldn't see. He was more worried about landing than he was about the engine, you know, that kind of stuff. So I get it. I don't want to seem like um, a complete a-hole, <laughs> you know, putting it lightly, saying no, that my point is I would have thought that it would be so ingrained that he would have pulled back both engines. Especially after 13,000 some flight hours. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah. In any normal flight, if it had been dry daytime and engines working, yeah. He probably wouldn't even have thought about the throttles at all then. It just would have been totally automatic. Would have pulled him all the way back. But in this case, he knew that he wanted to pull only one back because he wanted to find the way to stop as soon as possible. And unfortunately, since his mind was so focused on touching down early, he probably just grabbed that one throttle, pulled it all the way back, and totally forgot about the other one. 
Just too bad. Yeah, just wanted to state, I do not 100% blame the pilot on this. It was a combination of things that happened. So please don't come for me and <laughs> <laughs> yell at me for being like, he had anxiety and you're blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to do that. I literally am not. That's not my point at all. Um, so please, yeah, don't don't tear my head off. Now we're good. Miranda's one of my most ardent supporters of my crippling anxiety. So. <laughs> Your she, mother gives me anxiety. Oh, so. my mother gives me a <laughs> crap ton of anxiety. That's why we moved out. Your mother gives everybody anxiety. Anyway. Anyway. Okay, going on to the findings. Yes. So in this report, there were a ton of findings and a ton of recommendations. I mean, it was like half the report. But it was obnoxious. It, it honestly was. And a lot of the findings as well as a lot of the recommendations were kind of doubled. Like there were multiple reiterations in different ways. I mean, they sort of. There were a lot of things that came with it, but they were also worded kind of poorly in this report because it was translated, which is fine. I understood as much of it as I could anyways. And pulled these findings, or as they wrote it, conclusions from this. And summarized them. <laughs> so that they were at least understandable. They found that the parameters in which the aircraft operated the flight were all within the envelope of operations. So the airplane was completely operable, even with the only one thrust reverser. There was no issues. The airplane could have done the entire flight. Takeoff, landing, everything. No issue. They found that the FDR showed the thrust lever for the number two engine did not move from the climb position from the time they were both engines were set in that position early in the flight to the moment of impact. The spoilers did not deploy on landing. They found that in order for the aircraft to stop with one reverser activated and the other engine at climb setting, they would need at least 2,000 meters or a little more than 2,000 meters, which is more than they had. And that would have been in good conditions. The pilot in command knew the procedures for landing with an inoperable thrust reverser and chose to use the older. They found that there was no warning in the airplane to tell them about an inappropriate setting for thrust levers. And they found that there were various records of pilots placing one thrust lever in reverse and the other in climb. So that's a very generalized summary of the findings because there there really were a lot. Most of them, of course, were like, this was working, this was working, everything was operating, the whole airplane was operating. Fine. But these were the general findings that I was able to sum up most. So we'll move on to recommendations. What came from all of this? Because there's a lot, obviously, that was going on here, and it all happened so quick. What what happened? So in the recommendations, they recommended immediately restricting the operations of 17 right slash 35 left to dry operations Which is the only. same runway, by the way. It is the same runway. So 3-5 left would be your northbound direction on the runway. So you'd be landing going north, taking off going north. You'd be on 3-5 left. The other direction, the opposite direction on the same runway, if you were landing south on the same runway, is 1-7 right. Because think of it as 3-5-0 on a compass where 3-6-0 is dead north. They found that to maintain safe runway conditions, they should be more regularly inspected and tested for friction especially after resurfacing and construction work. They recommended possibly shortening the runway. I found this interesting. What? Yeah. They recommended possibly shortening the runway to allow for a runway and safe area, or an RESA, in accordance with the ICAO Annex 14 standards. So in other words, the runway literally went end to end on top of the hill. There was, if any airplane even overran the end of the concrete of the runway, they would end up in the highway. Which is what had happened to that 737. Basically, yes. They they had also veered slightly, but that was only to make sure that they didn't fall off. Um, <sighs> they did that on purpose. I feel like there's got to be a better solution to yeah, that. Yeah, and they never did this. They never did shorten the runway. Um, I think they might have created further thresholds. Basically, they wanted to shorten the length of the usable runway so that the airplanes would... Avoid running off onto the highway. Well, it's kind of like here at DIA, we have little... It's like collapsible... Yeah, they have the collapsible concrete that's supposed to collect the airplane, but keep it from running any further. Right. And DIA, by the way, if you don't know, it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, Denver International, Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not so worried about it going off into anything, to be honest. It's just field. Yeah. It's out east. It's in the plains. And the runways are really long there. It's really hard for anything to overrun it. But anyways... It's... Different story altogether, but that's yeah. what I would be would imagine would be what they were thinking of. But one of those three five left doesn't look like it's almost northbound. 
I know. But in order for it to be 3-5 left, it is. Magnetically, it is. Oh, magnetically. Never mind. Magnetically. It's always magnetic driven. Because you think about it, a magnetic compass in the airplane has to be able to tell you which direction to go. Well, and it's not even just... Because I'm looking at the Google Maps of this airport right now. And on the north side, there's a highway. Yep. And then neighborhood. Yep. On the south side, there's just neighborhood. Did you see that there's a... uh, They actually have a big memorial there. Where? Is there? Look look off the end of 17 right to the left. On the other side of the highway, there's a big concrete structure. It says, like, Memorial of 17th of July. Am I blind across the highway? Yep, right across the highway. Literally... It's right across the highway. To the left. Go further to the left if you didn't. Oh, I see it. God, I'm blind. That's how far left they went. That's exactly where they hit. That's exactly... Oh, jeez. They replaced the building and the gas station with a memorial. Which probably is a better idea anyway. (laughs) Just in case. Just in case. (laughs) That might be haunted. Maybe. Anyways. Ghost adventure? Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, you really want to go to Brazil? Yeah, I I do, actually. That would be fun, but also we're poor. Also, we're, let's not fly into conclusions. Well, we wouldn't. Anyway. Okay, sorry. Continue. That's okay. They recommended adding a briefing before landing. So normally when you perform a Did landing... Did they not have a briefing before landing? They had a briefing, but point is they recommended adding a very specific briefing before landing. Oh, okay. So before you land, uh, usually the pilot and co-pilot always have a briefing about what to expect given the conditions, given the airplane, given the information given about the airport... All these things. They run through a whole briefing, and they run through a whole briefing of how to expect speeds, everything, all that. Well, they recommended adding a briefing before landing that includes procedures in case the spoilers and or the speed brakes, the uh, actual brakes of the airplane, do not activate. That is oddly specific. But it's they probably want, a good idea, though. They wanted that recommended. They wanted that uh, recommendation of the briefing to specifically include an immediate go-around as the action if the spoilers do not activate. Yeah, see, so my guess would be if they decided to go around right when they realized, oh, the spoilers didn't deploy, right. it probably would have been okay. But because they didn't know what was going on, right. and they didn't know why they were having so many issues, that's why they ended up crashing. Right, so that's part of it, is like, it, it wasn't in their training, so it wasn't ingrained in what they do. So if they ingrained in their training, spoilers didn't activate, go around, they probably, they may have been able to save the airplane, that's no guarantee. Yeah, because we didn't know how much runway they had, how much right. speed they had. I can tell you right now that 6,500 feet in an airliner that's going 140 miles an hour, you don't have very long. Especially if the airplane isn't slowing down at all. You're going to cover that 6,500 feet in probably less than a minute, less than 30 seconds maybe. I mean, they had that long to think about it. Yeah, so if it wasn't part of the procedure, which it wasn't, yeah, they wouldn't have known, oh, we should do a go-around. Right. They recommended additional simulator training to include touch-and-go landings in the case that a spoiler and or brake, auto brake, does not activate. They recommended issuing an AD so that all A320s include a warning of an inappropriate thrust setting. So they wanted to work with Airbus on this. They wanted to make sure that there was maybe some kind of warning set up where if the, the thrust levers were too far apart, at least it would tell them, like, hey... You look like you're intending to land, but one of your throttles is way too high for that. Or the setting is too different between the two throttles. They recommended making a certification requirement for all currently certified airplanes, as well as all future aircraft in Brazil, specifically, to include said AD. So basically, they said any airplanes that are currently certified in Brazil, any airplanes that are future in the future to be certified in Brazil that they in, include that kind of warning system. So thing about recommendations is we cannot say that all of these were followed through with, and there's still more recommendations, but point is that we can't say that they're all followed through with, so this one I don't think they did. I'd be surprised, to be honest, because it would take a lot of work from all the manufacturers to add this in. Not that they wouldn't do it if it was absolutely necessary, but there are alternatives to this. Like a light. Yeah, I mean, anything. I mean, just having having some kind of warning built in, built in or something simple even or just giving a program update so that the airplane automatically pulls that throttle back, assuming that, okay, now you've touched down. They already have what's called a FADEC in the airplane. A FADEC is a full authority digital engine control system. So 
that basically is the system that drives all these these functions to happen automatically on landing. So, so all the pilots aren't having to activate the spoilers and press on the brakes and, you know, activate the thrust reversers and focus on flying the airplane all at once. It's supposed to help them with these functions. They are supposed to arm them all before landing, but they have the time to do that. So in other words, it's supposed to activate the auto brakes by twisting a knob and selecting how much. They're supposed to arm the spoilers so that as soon as the airplane touches down, when there's pressure on both the left and right landing gear, it automatically activates the spoilers, the brakes, the auto brakes, all these functions, and it allows the pilots to just do their job of flying the airplane. You know, it's it's one of those things like if they could add into the FADAC that when they put pressure on both landing gear, if one thrust reverser activates, the other engine at least automatically falls to idle using the auto throttle. That would make sense. They were recommend, they recommended working with the EASA, or the European uh, Committee that runs... It's basically like the FAA in Europe. Uh, they recommended working with them to make aircraft more intuitive to the pilots' intentions as far as using automatic thrust levers with regards to reverse settings. So in other words, doing exactly what I just explained. They recommended making working with Airbus to create these automated systems with the thrust reversers based on the pilot's intentions, making the airplane smart to what the pilot is going to do, what he's intending to do. If he's intending to land the airplane, then the throttle is expected to do this. You know, and that's, they're talking about making this a, a, a workable thing with Airbus. They recommended uh, studying the need for audits and evaluation of TAM's operations and maintenance procedures. So basically they're recommended that the National Civil Aviation Authority, or the ANAC in Brazil, as well as internal to the airline, they'd be doing more audits on the airline itself to make sure that the the operations and the maintenance procedures are being followed, but also are up to date and everybody is actually just standardized. Because this was not the first time that this particular plane had flown for a long period of time as in several days, without a thrust reverser. No. As a matter of fact, no. They found several cases where a thrust reverser was pinned shut by maintenance and delayed being repaired before... And it was being flown like that, which is fine. It's totally in the minimum equipment list. It's in the they, minimum equipment list, but maybe that's not what you should be doing. They can do it, but right. The point is, is like they don't mitigate risk. So they're not considering the risk. I mean, they know what could happen, but of course... They're not mitigating risk of this. They're not considering every single possible risk, and they're just doing it kind of constantly. So it's basically making sure that this isn't a constant occurrence. It should be a a rare thing. They recommended ensuring that the airlines are keeping backup maintenance records in a second location on the ground, not just in the physical aircraft for all maintenance records. So basically, the, the ground maintenance shops, they did have maintenance records for the airplane, and quite a few of them, but they were keeping every record in the airplane. So the records that were lost, that maintenance couldn't find, were in the airplane and burned. That's a bad idea. Yep. So they recommended basically making sure that there was a copy of it on the ground. Make backups so that if the plane, I don't know, crashes and burns, make sure that maintenance still has a copy of it. Lose that maintenance information, yeah. I'm reading some of the reviews of the memorial because I'm oddly curious. And somebody complained about it being too noisy. There's an it's airport. next to an airport and a highway. What do you want? It's where it happened. I'm just... It's better than it being a gas station. Anyways, I still have... There's... Gosh, there's so many recommendations. They recommended introducing clear procedures for runway and airport operations when runway conditions change. So, basically, they recommended that each individual airport change their operations standards and that that's communicated to the pilots and that they're trained on it for each individual airport when runway conditions change. So if it's resurfaced, here's what to expect now. And if it's raining, here's what to expect now and how to handle it. They wanted there to be very, very, very specific procedures every time there's a change. They recommended changing the terminal. This was interesting, actually. I thought this was strange. They recommended changing... Okay, so the terminal had just been overhauled as well. As a matter of fact, the, the, the terminal and the ramps had just been overhauled, and they said they recommended changing the terminal lighting at Kingonias to prevent reflections and distractions from the lighting 
to pan- pilots landing because the terminal was is pretty close to the runway there at Congonias compared to some other airports. So they changed the lighting is very bright and pointing in a different direction. Now they're trying to land and they're having to look past all these lights that are now reflecting off the runway because obviously it was smooth and there was water pooling and also it's just bright in their face. So they recommended changing those so that it wasn't a distraction to the pilots. However, in the report, it said so that to avoid dazzling the pilots. <laughs> Some that's what, dazzle. <laughs> that's what they. Uh, that's literally what they 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 translated it to was dazzling the pilots. But point is, is to avoid distraction. Ooh, shiny. Yeah, I know. Give on the old. Never mind. <laughs> razzle dazzle them. Okay. Yep. They recommended to work with the National Civil Aviation Authority or the ANAC on testing the friction coefficients of one seven right or three five left. And to test every fortnight, that was also written into the report. I think that's just a translation thing. It is a translation thing. It's just funny that it, it translates into an old English term. Actually, they still use it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Don't, don't English, get me wrong. English uses it. We don't use it here in America. Yeah, we don't really use that very much. Anyways, fortnight. Yeah, no, we weeks. don't use that. Yeah, two, two weeks. weeks. They recommended testing the, the runway every two weeks for the friction. Which I'm still curious, and I'm going to Google this right now. I wonder if those values are published. And they might be. They might be. But they recommended this actually not for the purpose of making sure that the runway surface was uh, frictionless, but they actually wanted to make sure that the rubber buildup from aircraft landing wasn't causing a friction issue. Which is normal at any airport, but be it that this one is particularly slick... And particularly short. Anyways. They recommended to groove the runways at Congonias as soon as possible. What a (laughs) concept. Yeah. And to test the friction and report to the ANAC. So they did do that. (laughs) Yeah. They they grooved the runways. Um, There's a lot of pilots actually apparently still in Brazil that fly in and out of that airport. And a lot of people that know that airport that believe that it, it won't help. (laughs) <laughs> they believe that that airport is just notoriously dangerous. It's too slick, too short. But, but to be honest, it does up the friction, and it did. It does help. There haven't been as many incidents at that airport since. They recommended to plan any special maintenance of the runway with the ANAC at Congonias. So, anytime they're going to resurface it, they need to actually submit to the ANAC. Basically, the you know the Brazilian governing body. Hey, we're doing this at this airport. Yeah, we're going to do this at this airport, and we will test it afterward. That's basically what they're telling them through all these. They recommend to the airlines operating at Kingonius to adjust the aircraft operating requirements, such as requiring two thrust reversers to be fully functional when landing at the airport. I think that's unnecessary. I think... As long as there's some way for the pilots to know where the engines are, it's probably fine. And that's fair, but let's be honest, if both of them, if they required, the airlines were required to have both thrust reversers working when they landed at that airport, then the pilots would just automatically always pull both engines back to thrust reverse. That's true. Or act like both of them, like Christy said earlier, act like both of them are working. Right. Because then that wouldn't have been an issue. Right. They recommended ensuring that the pilots are familiar with any changes in procedures for to the minimum equipment list requirements uh, for the A320, such as the thrust reverser procedure changing from pulling back both to idle and then one to reverse to both to idle and both to reverse. So they basically they recommended making sure that that training is ingrained and that is always what you do no matter what. That is the procedure. You don't use the old one. They recommend- okay, hold on. Okay. So I have some information on the friction coefficients of this incident. So, since 2004, there had been problems with that runway when friction coefficients were known to be below the level set by regulations, which is why they decided to redo it. So, after it was redone, the friction coefficient was between 0.68 and 0.7, which it was permitted to be entered into service. However, on July 19th, 2007, so... Two two days days later... There was a test done on the rainy, wet runway, and friction coefficients were at 0.35, still above required minimums, but below recommended levels. And needless to say, it was, I mean, airplanes were landing there, but it was too low for this airplane. Right, and because of the conglomerate of stuff, 
if the friction coefficient was higher, it would have been easier for them to it land. Was, it was literally cut in half by yep. not being grooved and having a wet runway. Yep. Having too much water on the runway. But the values, if they do measure them, are not published from what I can find. Yep. Which sucks, because I want to know. Okay, I have three more. Go for it. Okay. <gasps> I know. I promise we're almost done. Only three more. They recommend ensuring that there's a standardization of flight instructors to ensure that all procedures are trained and followed in a standard way. So, in other words, you know, you get a dozen different flight instructors that are each specializing in a few different things, and then they're training on other things. Well, that means pilots are getting maybe two, three different words on how to handle a certain procedure. While they all might be very similar or basically the same, they're not getting exactly the same thing. Or one pilot is getting trained by one instructor. He's told to do a procedure a certain specific way. Another pilot is getting trained by another one. He's trained to do the same procedure a very similar way, but not specifically the same. So it's making sure that those flight instructors are doing ex- are trained exactly the same way, training the same way, and all pilots are using that training in exactly the same way. They recommended enforcing the use of go-arounds for flight crews to ensure that they are using them in the event of an unsafe condition. You can always go around. You can always go around. Look that up. There's a song. Um, There's a, a crash that I've watched an Air Disasters video on, video episode, um, where they were coming into an airport. I believe it was in Ireland. Uh, it might have been the Cork Airport, actually. Yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had gone around, like, three, yeah, three and they were, times. At that point, they were worried about fuel. Yeah, they were worried about trying to get to another airport, which I'm surprised they did, like, one go around. After the second time, go to a different airport. Yeah. Because they eventually, they ended up crashing and killing a lot of people. Yeah. Um, not as many, because it was a smaller aircraft. Yeah, that one was, that airplane has the unfortunate nickname of being called the la- the Lawn Dart. Because it's a very long, pencil-y, sharp-looking airplane. It only has 19 seats, but they have an unfortunate reputation as well. Yeah, we may cover that, or I might still cover flying. that later. You They're know. still flying. There's an airline here where I work, actually, that still flies them. And I'm not saying it's a bad airplane, but they tried landing in adverse conditions where they couldn't see, where they didn't have a lot of control. They did it go around twice. They tried landing the third time, and they crashed. So... Moral of the story, if you need to do a go-around, do a go-around. If you have to do more than one, go to a different airport. It's not worth it. It's, Generally, It's yeah. not worth it for safety reasons. And most airlines have an, an exact procedure on when to divert. And this airline did not, for various reasons from what I remember. But Yeah, yeah. Um, it, that, that one that's was what pretty, it reminds me of. That one was pretty recent, too. That one was actually probably pretty similar timing. Well, I guess it would have been a little before. <coughs> would have been a little before this incident. Maybe. Yeah, and like I said, it was in Cork, Ireland, so... Yeah. I only have one more. We are officially putting the video on our website because we've listed it. We've talked about it so many times. The go-around? The go-around song. Yeah, okay. Uh, Just send it to me so I can make sure... By the way, I'm in charge of the website, so send it to me so I remember. Yes, it was in Cork. Yeah. See, I have a good memory. Good job. Yep. I knew it was in Ireland. Yeah. Twas in Cork. Yeah, I know which the summary was. was crash following loss of control during go around. See, yeah. see, <laughs> see. If you can't see, you have to do go around more than once. You Just go to another go airport. Around. Yep. There's a there's an airport in Dublin that they could have gone to. There are many. Anyway, Dublin's a little oh, anyway. There's My a lot point of airports being, in Ireland. There's another airport you can go to, probably within close distance. Yeah, there's a lot of airports in Ireland. Or wherever. There's three in freaking New York. Yeah, there was you know, another major one in, like I said earlier, there's another major one in Sao Paulo. Yeah, so just go to another airport. Okay, continue, sorry. Continuing. Last recommendation. They recommended creating a procedure on the A320 for crews to perform a corrective action if the spoilers do not activate. So basically, if it boils down to you're not going to do any sort of warnings or automation or anything, at least make a procedure in for the A320 that if the spoilers do not activate automatically on touchdown, there's some sort of corrective action. Checklist or something. There's some, like, well, some sort of like... Probably not a checklist. It's but. probably something you're trained to do because you don't have time to think. You just have to do it. Question. Which more than likely is go around. When you're landing, are you required to verbally say spoilers deployed? Generally, in most airlines today, yes. Actually, okay. there is a 
there's a uh, yeah there's usually an oral the the pilot monitoring has to say something usually to that effect so when they touch down they say spoilers spoilers deployed or spoilers activated do they have to physically look back or do they have indicators they have indicators most airplanes have pressure driven indicators so when the spoilers go up literally it like it releases a button basically okay cool just those kinds of things like it's actually pressure driven it's not like a it it probably wouldn't give you a false indication like 99.9 percent thank you for answering the question i had before i had it yep so that's it that's all i got on recommendations and such yeah all right so i mean there was a lot of recommendations in this and a lot of them didn't make a lot of sense to be honest but there were a lot of them and there was a lot of kind of double down but ultimately the biggest thing is they wanted to fix the thrust reverser problem make sure pilots were trained to follow only one procedure and fix the runway yeah because if any one of those things would have been yep in place this wouldn't have happened i don't know if you noticed what recommendation was missing because it wasn't called out anywhere but it was lighting on the throttles that's what i said there should be a light installing a light somewhere is probably the one of the easiest things you can do. And yes, this or is... Or put, like, glow-in-the-dark tape on them or something. Generally, they are lit up in some way or another. There's some kind of little, like, strip lighting on them. But... Did that come because of this? And not necessarily. So I don't know that the A320 does, to be honest. But in any case, they're, that's less of a concern because it should be a tactile feel. And it should be... That should be automated. If he had followed the... The new procedure, which was which he knew, was to pull it all the way back to, to both of them to reverse. Then he would have. But they would so. have found the issue quicker if they could see the throttle. My issue is, why was it so dark they couldn't see their instrument? That's my issue. Well, because if I mean, there are that's any... and if it's automatic, it's automatic. But clearly, because right. he was so anxious and so worried, it was clearly a problem here. Yes, obviously. So. If we have any A320 pilots listening, please let us know if there is any kind or of... engineers or anything. If you've been in a cockpit, you know what it looks like, like, let us know. Thanks. I haven't been in an A320 cockpit in a while, which is funny because that's what we always fly on. Uh, for the most part, yeah. Except Maybe. we're not to Oregon. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I flew on a 737. A 37. A 37. That was probably when we went to Miami for, for our, our first cruise. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe we'll check next time we go on a Frontier flight. Maybe. We'll just I guess ask. you could ask a pilot, yeah. They're sitting in the cockpit. You could be like, uh, I have a question <laughs> for our plane. I have a podcast. Crash podcast. <laughs> yeah. I need answered. <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to answer this for me. Yep. They'd probably think we're really weird, but. Hey, they might listen to the podcast. Probably. Hey, maybe. True. I wouldn't mind talking to a pilot sometime. Literally just having a like quick hey cool you do your job if any pilots are listening hey. and they want to be a guest for whatever random reason we won't put what um, airline airline you work for nope. that goes for anybody if you work for an airline you've been through an accident or anything you work for maintenance like nick's dad works for maintenance for an airline we would never say what airline you work for nope if you're ever on the podcast because we know right that you could get reprimanded for being on this podcast and uh, saying what airline you're from. So we're trying not to create a conflict of interest. Basically we get it. We probably wouldn't even do an episode that correlates with your airline. So, but if you're a pilot and you're interested about an incident of an airplane similar to what you fly and you want to be on here, please let us know. We'll try to take that recommendation. We want more guests. Have you on as a guest and, or if you're a private pilot too, that'd be kind of cool. Not that, I mean, you'd know a lot about aviation, but not really about commercial airlines. But whatever. I mean... Hey, we had Chris on. He's a teacher. True life. I mean, we need all sorts of different kinds of guests. Aviation, obviously, would be the best we can get. We shouldn't have Chris most two times in a row. He already has an ego. True life. <laughs> Don't we'll we all? Him. We'll have him again someday. But He wants to do the comet. I know. That's a good one. He's, he's really excited. That's good. We gotta wait. That one's gonna be a little ways out. But okay, so this was Tam. What was it? Thirty fifty four. Tam thirty fifty four. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. This is the first one of the new year. We'll be posting. Yeah. Um. So Happy New Year. Happy twenty twenty. Um. Hope it's great because you know 
2019, at least for me, kind of sucked. So Hey, you graduated, okay? I did graduate, yeah. but my brother went into the hospital, so. That's fair. Kind of horrible. I, this will be, like, right after my eye appointment, so maybe at this point I'll have 20-20 vision. Hey! Hey! Hey, all right. Good luck with that. Thanks so much for listening. Yep. Give a, remember, give us reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts. Five star, help us get it up there. Um, help so people, people find us. And support us on Patreon if you're not already after last week's kind of We got the study. patches in today, by the way. Oh, God. They're, they're awesome. super cool. They are pretty cool. We're going to so, post a picture of that probably today. So that'll be long in the past now by the time you listen to this. But still, go if look at it. If you're signed up for the flight crew level, you get one for free. So. Yeah. And we send it to you. It's and, really freaking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. They're so, pretty cool. Thanks, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Keep your airspeed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.